uncommon sense advice on your work life, your personal life, and God knows what else. Welcome to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. Hi, I'm Marty Nemco. Welcome to another edition of How to Do Life. Um, this one we're going to talk about ethics. I am afraid of doing this topic because it's going to seem sanctimonious, but if you think you might like to be more ethical uh, in your daily life, if maybe if you look back on your life and uh, uh, don't feel as good as you want to feel about your ethical behavior, as the cliche goes, maybe you know you want to live life so that you could tell your child uh, everything you do, um, maybe this will help. Um, my plan is to just briefly talk about how I went from being an unethical person to a more ethical, or not an unethical person, but not, a, not great, and to really quite ethically pure now. And I say this not to brag, but merely to share with you what has worked for me, um, and uh, hopefully share some ideas that will uh, help you, it's basically a very, very simple idea that's going to help you um, be more ethical if you want to be. And then, in most cases, people know what to do. It's just they choose to be expedient. Uh, but it will end because it's more interesting uh, to talk about some ethical gray areas, including about COVID and everything else under the sun. So anyway, that's the plan. And so now I shall hold forth. So OK, what I mean when I say I wasn't uh, such an ethical guy as a teenager is I shoplifted. Uh, not a huge amount, but I did. And I, it really was just expedience. I mean, I, I knew it was wrong, um, but I made up garbage rationalizations um, that, that, that enabled me to shoplift. And I just didn't, didn't care enough to, to say, oh, no, this is wrong. I'm not going to do it. I just said, oh, what the hell? There's a big company. They can afford the shirt, or they can afford the whatever, the belt. What has changed? And I think it's as, as good as I can do. This is my best shot at it. I've always had a fear of death and dying, which is accelerated, of course, as you get older. And so in recent years, my awareness of my mortality has made me say, what is, what do I, what is important to me? You know, and somehow leaving this world better and not doing anything that's going to be wrong in the cosmic scheme of things that's going to hurt other people is the right thing to do. I, I'm what to call the, my ethics, and this is my, everybody's got an individual definition of ethics, and mine is I'm a utilitarian. I believe in making decisions that are going to do the most good for the most people, except if it's going to violate some cosmic universal values, like even if it's going to do more people more good for people, I'm not going to, uh, you know, uh, make people starve so that people who have better, more likely to create jobs. I'm, I'm, you know, I have my limits, but generally I am always thinking about what is the decision that I could make that's going to have the biggest net positive influence on my sphere of influence. It's not usually the whole world, but on the people I'm influencing. Because if I die tomorrow, and it's not like I want to tell my daughter anything about this. It's private for me. It's just the way I want to live my remaining days, which I hope is going to be, you know, lots of them left, but you never know. But that's really what guides me. It's like saying that that's the right way to live. Not for fear of getting caught, not from showing off, but not because I believe in God, I'm an atheist, it's not that. It's this sense of 
this is the cosmic right thing to do. And I recognize that most people are not going to be very ethical a lot, some of the time. I don't care. It's not a competition. I'm not sharing. It's the sense of this is the way I want to walk the earth. That's it. It's not like I'm going to get rewarded in heaven. It's not nothing. It even goes beyond what's best for society. It's, it's more universal. It's like these are universal truths. You must do the thing that's going to be right for the world, for that necessarily is going to be right for the world. And so how do I keep doing that? It's just top of mind. It's like any new habit. When I, it, was, it wasn't all at once. It was gradually. But little by little, I became more of the view that that is the way I want to live. And so little by little, I did it more and more. And it was more and more ethical and more and more ethical. And then eventually, like any habit, it became automatic. So now I really don't even think about it. It's not even a choice. Am I perfect? No. I'm sure I do some stuff. I do some stuff, I'm sure, that isn't quite right. Although, I, I, you know, as you know, I don't script any of this. But I thought for a few minutes about, what do I do in the last year or so that's unethical? I don't think so. I may lie occasionally, but that's to serve a larger good. If I think it'll help the person or help society or whatever, I may withhold the truth or I may even say a lie. But it's always... I really think it's always about what is going to be right for the world. That, and I divine a selfish benefit of that. I feel, feel worthy. I feel like I deserve to be on this earth. And so, anyway, those are my thoughts about how one can do it. And the key, again, is, that, you know, it, before it was a habit, and so if you are going to try to be more ethical, it ain't going to be automatic. But the key is to be vigilant, to be constantly aware of what the Buddha say in the moment, whatever. But as you're making all the little micro decisions that we make every day, you know, and there's, there's gray areas, you know, is it ethical to eat meat? I don't know. It's a gray area. You know, I'm not going to take a strong stand. But most times we know what we're supposed to do, you know, what's clearly ethical and not yet still, as we know, so many people do things that are unethical. They steal, they embezzle. They cheat on their wife. They claim false paternity. They, they you know, manipulate. They, the salespeople lie. Um, you know, it's a million things that we that we do that that are not ethical. So most times it's just a matter of staying aware and vigilant and saying what really is more important. Is the extra money you're going to get more important? And for some people it is. You know, and it's easy for me as a, a person who's got means to. Uh, you know, to, to be high and mighty and sanctimonious. I mean, it's not as easy for me to uh, to say that if you're starving, you know, you shouldn't steal a loaf of bread. I'm not, I'm not there. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, where your dishonesty is going to, you know, maybe make you an extra $100,000 and you're already middle, upper middle class or middle class so you can buy a Lexus instead of a Toyota or a fancier zip code or a five-star vacation instead of a three. You know, it's that kind of lack of ethics that, you know, we know is right and wrong to not embezzle, not steal, whatever. And that's what I'm asking you. If you want to, and I would, of course, encourage you to be more ethical, that, that it's a matter of staying alert, vigilant, aware, maybe even having a little memo pad or use the note the notepad function on your, uh, on your phone and keep a log of your behaviors over the next week, every day and every night, look at it and see to what extent were you ethical you know, log what you did and why you did it. And then at the, at, at the end of each day, as you lie in bed, 
take a quick look at your notes and your phone and ask yourself, is this the way you want to be tomorrow? And that should, little by little, get you more ethical. Do you really need to be ethically pure? Ideally, yes, but in the real world, we're human beings. We're not perfect. Um, but getting more ethical, that might be a way to do it. But now, more fun um, might be the gray areas. So I've come up with about a dozen of these truly gray area uh, decisions that are not clearly right or wrong, but are interesting and may help you be more nuanced in your decisions. And besides, I just think it's entertaining for what it's worth. So, okay. So I'll start with uh, uh, at least one that has to do with uh, uh, COVID, since it's top of mind for so many people. And it's the question of who should have priority in receiving a vaccine. So it's ethically solid that first responders should be the first to get the vaccine. The controversy arises, though, as to whether elderly people should be next in line. Yeah, older people are more vulnerable to hospitalization and to dying from COVID, but they've got fewer years left to live. and prolonging their life with the vaccine, on average, means that they're going to die of a more protracted disease, which would torment not only themselves, but their family and the already overwhelmed healthcare system. With children and young adults rarely getting serious COVID disease, might it be ethical for people between 30 or 40, uh, between, you know, say 30 or 40 and 60, to be second in priority? I'll give you an example. Um, there was a county in which they said that healthcare workers should get priority, but it included healthcare administrators. The question is, here's this guy, let's say, or woman, whatever, 45 years old, no underlying conditions, and he or she is allowed to get the vaccine under the argument that he or she will be making decisions that will indirectly affect the healthcare of a lot of people. And that's a good argument for taking the vaccine. But there's an argument against, and this is where it's gray area. I say, you know, I know I'm legally allowed to, but the truth is my, as long as I take the normal precautions of, you know, hand washing, mask wearing, uh, uh, and social distancing, of course, that um, my chance of transmissibility is small, and I'll be a great role model for my fellow uh, peers and workers if I tell them that, and so that more deserving people will, will, will get it. So there's an argument for taking it, an argument not for taking it uh, for this 45-year-old. And there certainly is an argument in my judgment, an ethical judgment, an argument for not giving it to the oldest people first because of the reasons I outlined. Anyway, I think that's an interesting ethical dilemma. Turn to something very different. Uh, I alluded to this briefly earlier. Is a salesman ethically obliged to reveal his product's core weakness? Let's pretend that you sell new Chevys. And a prospect is deciding between a Chevy Cruze and a Toyota Corolla. And this prospect tells you that reliability is the number one criteria for that person in choosing a car. She might say something, I hate getting into my car to go to work and then it won't start. Or the vulnerability of being on the side of the road waiting for a tow truck. And so this person thinks, incorrectly, that Chevy on average is more reliable than Toyota. And you know she's wrong. Well, here's an argument for telling her you will likely save her a lot of anxiety. She's going to buy the Toyota, which she'll feel more confident in, and the car will, in fact, be less likely to break down. Of course, you can cite any benefits that the Chevy has over the Toyota so that that can be weighed by this person. But there's also a great argument for not reporting it. It's unrealistic to expect a salesperson to turn down a, to turn down a sale about something that's a small difference in, the, in the, ultimately the probability of a breakdown. If the person does turn down every customer 
who is uh, uh, who uh, who he can't be completely honest with. You know, the really completely honest person would d d mention all the downsides of a Chevy. Well, that person would sell a few cars that would both cut the dealer's income and result in the salesperson getting fired, less likely to obtain another job to support the family, and then have to live on a taxpayer. And in a subsequent job interview, if the person is asked why they lost the job, and he said, well, because I keep, I keep telling customers about the bad stuff about my cars, they'll never get hired for a sales job and have to train for a new career, which may or may not be better. So it's, it's, you know, while yes, I absolutely come down on the side of the salesperson disclosing all the upsides and downsides of the product and letting the person decide, even if it means the person's going to not sell, but there can be an argument on the other side. Okay. Another ethical gray area is whether it's ethical. Before I actually share this, I should let you know what you're listening to. You're listening to How to Do Life. I'm Marty Nemco. Uh, this is my podcast, and some of you I make, I stop by making a YouTube video so that those of you who are, just want to watch this and watch me torture myself thinking about what to say can do so, but then it gets converted into a podcast in a day or two on it. Uh, so you can find that by uh, going to How to Do Life uh, Simplecast, and you'll find it. You're listening to How to Do Life with career and personal coach, Dr. Marty Nemco. If you'd like to work with him, email him a description of your situation, mnemco at comcast.net. That's M-N-E-M-K-O at comcast.net. Marty is pleased if you choose to subscribe to this podcast. If you're not listening to this on Simplecast, just go to how-to-life.simplecast and click on listen and subscribe. Anyway, so the third ethical dilemma is, is it ethical to start a business that sells the frivolous, for example, party favors? You know, let's say you're thinking of opening a store that sells party goods, you know, decorations, New Year's hats and horns, cute plates and napkins. Well, an argument against doing that is you're devoting your efforts to the silly. You're devoting your life to the silly, to the unimportant. When millions of people are starving, being abused and so on, how can you waste your time on crepe paper and noisemakers? And almost all that stuff's made in China. Workers are paid so little and with bad working conditions, and you, unlike big corporations, can't check on the worker conditions there. And when you're trying to push those pointy party hats and noisemakers with ads or with effective salespeople, you're pushing people to part with good money on crap when the money could so much more wisely be spent. And yet there is an argument in favor of running that business. Selling anything has pros and cons. To argue against selling party goods is to argue against selling anything. The environmental degradation is modest compared with most things that people spend money on. And if those party favors aren't sold, the workers in China or wherever may lose their jobs. And the cost of buying party favors is trivial, unlike, for example, those commercials that push luxury cars. In selling party favors, you're giving people clear pleasure with no downsides, unlike alcohol, tobacco, and yeah, weed. Do you really want a world that's so bleak that they can't decorate their room for a holiday party? And that party favor store, unlike on Amazon, can provide personalized service. For example, helping a person plan the party. Not just what party favors they need, but maybe tips on invitation lists, seating arrangements, and so on. So as long as you choose to run your business in a way that provides maximum value for the dollar people spend, it's ethical. So there's an ethical dilemma. If, let's say, your friend said that he or she wanted to start a party goods store. How would you react? 
Fourth ethical dilemma. You've been terminated. And let's say you've got soft skills, you know, people skills, you're organizing, whatever, you're not technical. And you've, you know, so you've gotten by on the soft skills. Now, but having been laid off, you've now, let's pretend that you've been looking hard for a job for 10 months and you've got nothing. You've exhausted your savings. You're just two months from being unable to pay the rent. You could move back in with your parents, but then they would have to suffer with your being there and your child would have to change schools, let's say, to a worse school. And you know that the longer you're unemployed, the harder it's going to be to convince an employer to hire you. <clears throat> You'll be increasingly viewed as having been picked over and that no one else wants to hire, so why should they? So you're wondering whether you should lie on your resume and say that you're working and ask your friend if it's okay to list, <laughs> to list him as the boss. Well, here's an argument for lying. Many jobs require just soft skills, and you're good at them, and so you deserve a job. But with that gap in employment, it's going to be really hard to land one. So if you leave that gap on your resume, you're going to lose your apartment. You have to live with your parents, which will be hard on them. And your kids are going to have to change schools. It means get to a worse school, get a worse education. And simply, you have to lose your current friends and have to start fresh. The small lie about uh, still having a job is more than compensated for by the benefit. But there is a good argument that can be made against lying. You are being unfair to the honest job applicants who thereby would be denied the job. Yes, it's possible that person needs the job less than you, but that's far from certain. Also, the fact that you've not been selected despite 10 months of trying suggests that you may not be as worthy an employee as you think you are. It's wiser to look inward and get some honest feedback from others so you can improve your skills or change careers to one in which you'd be more readily hired. So you can see there's a gray area, pro and con. What would you do in that situation if you got laid off? Would you, um, would you lie on your resume? Okay, another employment example. I tend to give employment examples because I'm a career counselor. Let's say that one of your grandparents is half Cuban and claims he is Latino on his job uh, applications or graduate school applications. And he argues in favor of doing that because he's applied for many jobs without having stated that and he hasn't landed anything. He's got three kids. He's got a wife who's a stay-at-home mom, and savings have run out, and they're facing eviction for not payment of rent. So is it okay to lie and say you're half Latino, or say you're Latino on the application, even though you're really marginally that, your, your, your grandfather was half Latino, and you're, you know, really your life, it's not like you are the classic campesino farm worker who lives in poverty and is 100% Latino. You're really using it to, to, to get a job. Do you think that's ethical? you think it's not ethical. Another ethical example uh, in the career counseling area is you're asking your career counselor to write your resume and your cover letter. You're aware that employers use resumes and cover letters not just a, as a recitation of your work history, but it's an index of your ability to reason, to communicate, and produce an error-free document. You consider that writing that resume and cover letter no more ethical than a parent writing their kids' college application essay. On the other hand, you say, uh, uh, you know, I guess I can't, I can't take an argument against that. That's to me clearly unethical, and yet resume writers and career counselors do it all the time. I'm sorry, it's not a gray area. I think it's dead wrong. Again, for the, the honesty employee who, who uh, does their own resume and cover letter knowing that that's going to reveal what they're really, their thinking skills, their writing, or whatever, are like. Um, to, to lie and have somebody else do it is going to get that person a yeah, much more likely to get an interview unfairly than that honest job seeker. And so for me, it's not a gray area. Okay. 
Uh, what else do I want to talk about? Another example. Okay, here is a really tough one. You're four months pregnant, and an ultrasound reveals that your baby's going to have Down syndrome. Do you keep the baby or abort? The argument for keeping the baby or an argument for keeping the baby is to abort a child with Downs is to kill a future person who can likely live a decent life. And from a selfish perspective, Downs children are often unusually sweet. An argument for aborting the baby? Having a child with Downs is going to dramatically impede your career and therefore ability to make a difference in the work world and your personal life. And if you abort that child, you can choose to have another. You're likely, you know, we, fortunately we live in an era where birth control is freely available. You decide that you and hopefully your partner want to have two kids, you can still have two kids, but that child will likely not have Downs or any other serious disorder. In either case, whether you have the Downs child or not, you're bringing one child into the world. Why not bring one who's going to live a more enriched life, be able to be more contributory, not dependent on the state, and allow you to live yours? So there's a good argument for and against aborting a Down syndrome baby. Of course, there's also the slippery slope argument. You know, once you start allowing people to to uh, if, to abort a child who isn't quite what you like, let's well, say you you know there is in the future they, that the kid only has average intelligence or average looks, and they want to hold out for you know a, a brilliant, gorgeous-looking baby. Should that person be allowed to abort? That's a really complicated issue. I want to talk about that one briefly because it really is powerful. It feels Naziistic. This really creates the EU response. And yet, as long as it's not coercive, should not people have, I'm not talking about the government forcing sterilizations or anything like that or abortions, but should, I'm asking, should that individual woman and her partner, if there was a point where there is a genetic test for intelligence, let's say, we know how important intelligence and predicting ability to negotiate the world, to succeed economically, to make a difference, to cure cancer. Should that woman or man have the right to abort a child who, let's say, is going to they predict, let's say they've got a test in the future that could, the kid will have an average intelligence, average IQ, average reasoning ability, in service of holding out for a, a, a kid who has you know, way above average ability, or even in an era of gene splicing, you know, what they call CRISPR, would you advocate replacing a gene for, this gene set is because of many genes, for average intelligence for one with high intelligence or high impulse control, so they're not impulsively violent or impulsively doing drugs, so they find out genes for good looks. Should parents have that option to choose that, or are the the negative consequences of too great. I mean, I guess it could be argued that it would create a, a, a monoculture, deaths of, of you know, it, it would become too too judgmental about what's right and wrong in the world. I mean, some, there are many parents, for example, of those Down syndrome kids who love their kid to death and would never trade them for the world. And yet it would be a race to, a race to the top, if you will, if everybody was allowed to you know, genetically alter their 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 egg and sperm, their their um, the, the, the mini the fetus, the fertilized egg. On the other hand, it's like, you know, how many pee are we going to preclude parents from trying to get the best school for their children, or to supplement their education so that they can be the most? That's also a, you know a competition and a race for excellence. 
complicated. That's a really hard, complicated ethical issue, which I love to talk about. As I said in, in the beginning, most times the issues are very easy, but occasionally they're really complicated like that one, and I find it fun uh, to, to explore that. I hope you're finding it too. Another ethical dilemma. Is there ever justification for hiding money from your spouse? Let's say you've been married for five years and you live in a city with a high cost of living. You made nearly all the income and because that's been a real strain, you begged your spouse to find a job. You scream, the stress is killing me! But it's been to no avail. Your spouse has made only half-hearted efforts to get a job, which because they're half-hearted, not surprisingly failed. You are quite sure that your spouse sabotaged her own efforts or his own efforts to land a job because your spouse didn't want to work. Well, after three years, you were increasingly sure the marriage isn't going to last. So, you had hid $25,000 by giving it to your mother for safekeeping. Now you're divorcing, and although $75,000 remains in a joint account, a friend tells you to put that $25,000 back in the pot to be divided with your spouse in the divorce settlement. There is an argument for putting that $25,000 in the pot, of course, a good argument. When you decided to marry, you knew that the law requires that in divorce, your spouse gets half the money no matter who earned it. And even if before marrying, you didn't know your spouse would earn no income. If indeed that was a deal breaker, you should have initiated divorce when you realized, uh, when you realized that. And that would have allowed you both to more quickly move on to a more mutually agreeable relationship. But there is also an argument for not putting the $25,000 in the pot. From a universal justice perspective that I described, though, you deserve that money. You earned it. And your spouse, who claimed in marrying you to love you forever, despite your begging, the stress is killing me, refuses to work. And unless your income is unusually high, it's untenable, after taxes, to live in a major city or suburb based on just one income. So from that perspective, it is unjust for that non-earner to get half of the $25,000 on top of being supported for five years, plus the $37,500 she'd get in the joint account's assets. So what would you do? What is the ethical thing to do? Sometimes following the law is the right thing to do, but I, you know, Lawrence Kohlberg, the famous ethicist, talked about following the law being only an intermediate level um, level of, of moral uh, moral thinking, and the highest level really is this cosmic level. What is what is what is what is what comports with universal justice beyond even what's good for society? What are these universal values that are that are quote right? Okay, another one, uh, another ethical dilemma. On a dating website, is it ever ethical to make yourself seem younger than you are? So let's say you're older and you've been single a long time and you're lonely. You're frustrated that it seems that all the good potential romantic partners want someone younger. You think, if only they'd give me a chance, they'd see I bring a lot to a relationship even if I do have wrinkles. So you're wondering if, like many people, your profile should say you're younger than you are and include only a distant photo so that your age isn't apparent. Well, there's an argument for lying about your age. What really counts is what's inside. and if you have to lie to over, overcome unreason, unreasonable ageism, why not? That would result in both you and the other person getting into a good relationship that otherwise wouldn't have occurred. But there is an argument against lying. People should be allowed to make choices based on the truth. If a person wants a younger partner because of a chemical retraction and is afraid that an older person right, would be culturally different because they're older or get sick sooner, that's their right. Also, lying about age builds your relationship on a lie, which typically leads to more lies. And all that assumes you don't get discovered. It's likely that at the first date, if you look older than your stated age or that fuzzy picture implies, the person's going to distrust you 
and probably discontinue the relationship, even if he or she otherwise enjoyed it. So what do you think is right in this gray area situation? And the final example of an ethical dilemma is if you're terminal, do you ever have an obligation to end your life? Let's say you have stage four cancer and you have poor quality of life and your doctor says there's little hope and so you're wondering if you should off yourself. An argument in favor? Even with co-pays, your family's probably losing some financial security paying for your care. For example, in assisted living or home nursing or domestic health. And the more care that people get, the more expensive insurance premiums going to be for everyone. Plus, there's a shortage of doctors and nurses, especially in the COVID era. If it's spent on hopeless cases, there's not enough access for people who could profit more. That's something that every war medic knows. Triage is necessary to make the difference. You, you treat the people not necessarily who are sickest, but the ones with the greatest potential to profit when you have limited amount of drugs and bandages and whatever. And if you are older and you've got this end-stage cancer, you know that if you're going to continue with treatment, chances are you're going to need expensive palliative surgeries, drugs, and still only live a short amount of time in low-quality time. Uh, you're well aware that most people spend the most healthcare dollars in their life's last six months, plus your family's going to suffer. An argument against the, uh, offing yourself is you can't be expected to be that self-sacrificial. You're entitled to live as long as you decide it's worth it. Society has enough money to pay for good health care. If it chooses to spend on other things, that doesn't mean you have an obligation to kill yourself. Give yourself a break. You're suffering enough in your illness. You shouldn't feel the need to donate your life. The savings to the system would be trivial in regard to your family spending down their resources. Shouldn't they have the freedom to decide what to do with their money? So another tough ethical dilemma. In any event, I hope you... Uh, you know, amid these gray area issues, that's fun, but I do, you know, at the risk of sanctimony, I do think it is very wise to make ethics primary, and if you want to get more ethical, to walk the earth, perhaps with your memo pad, keeping a log, of deciding what is the ethical thing to do, what is clearly going to benefit not just you, but even when it's inexpedient, making decisions where you can, you know, I'm not saying if you're starving and you know and need bread, and you, need, and you can't you can't you can't get bread. Even all the welfare programs don't get you enough to, to eat. Um, but for most people who are not in survival mode, acting in a way that you think will make you feel good about how you're walking on this earth, because you are making decision after decision after decision that's going to yield the greatest common good. And yes, the kind of life you're, you're role modeling will be the kind of one that your everybody you know, your peers, your, your significant other, your children can feel proud of. And you can put your head on, on the pillow every night feeling good. In any event, that is uh, how to do uh, this episode of How to Do Life. Uh, uh, I do thank you for watching. Uh, as always, um, I welcome your thumbs up. If you're watching this on YouTube, accept your thumbs down. Always look forward to your comments, and especially like it if you hit the share button below. Share on your social media so that my efforts can have broader impact. And I am flattered if you choose to subscribe to my channel. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've got about 35 episodes now of uh, How to Do Life on Simplecast if you want to hear them as a podcast. In any event, I do thank you for watching or listening. I am Marty Nemco. You've been listening to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. For comments on the show or to consult with Dr. Marty Nemko, his email address is mnemko at comcast.net. Post-production of How to Do Life by Terry Rouse. Music by Blue Dot Session. Thanks for listening.